Welcome to Church Meets World, a podcast from America Media about where the Catholic Church meets the most interesting and consequential issues of our time. I'm Sebastian Gomes, an executive editor at America. And I'm Maggie Van Dorn, an audio producer at America. Now, the COVID-19 pandemic has disrupted every part of our lives, including the things we look to for entertainment and community building, things like sports. Remember those, Maggie? Remember sports? (laughs) Vaguely. I vaguely recall them. Well, one of the most popular annual sporting events in the country is the men's college basketball tournament, known as March Madness. With 64 teams from across the country, they play a series of single elimination games to see who will reign as national champion each year. And last year, the men's and women's tournaments were canceled. Remember, it was right around this time last year in March that everything was shut down. So... A year later, the tournament is back on, but it will be looking different. Usually, the tournament is spread out across the country, and this year, for safety, the entire thing will be held in a basketball bubble in Indiana. Only 34 players and staff per team will be allowed in. They will each require seven consecutive days of negative COVID-19 tests before entering the bubble, and they will take daily rapid tests throughout the tournament. Yeah, big shout out to all of the organizers for finding a safe way to make this happen. It's a hugely popular sporting event, not only for fans, but also for the people who profit from it. We can't forget that. There are sponsors, advertisers, huge TV deals, salaries for coaches and school administrators. But interestingly, None of that money goes to the players, the guys who work their butts off to put on a show for the rest of us. So today in this episode of Church Meets World, we're exploring the concept of paying college athletes. And we'll be looking specifically at what Catholic social teaching, especially the dignity of work and questions of labor justice, have to say about it. But first, a word about our sponsor this week, The Great Courses Plus. We're talking about sports today, Maggie, and I'm a big golfer. It's like the only sport I can play during a (laughs) pandemic because the the distancing is naturally built in. (laughs) It Um, is built in for you. That's right. (laughs) And they say that golf is 90% mental, 10% physical, believe it or not. Uh, But I can personally attest to that. I mean, your frame of mind, your emotions, all of that factors in. I mean, if I'm standing at the tee box and in my mind, I'm like, don't hit it over there. Don't hit it over there. There's water over there. Don't hit it over there. Sure enough, where am I going to hit it? Right into the water. So Uh I was so happy to watch the course called The Psychology of Performance, How to Be Your Best in Life. I was really Uh impressed by how comprehensive it was. Uh, They take the time to explain the psychological factors behind good performance for someone who likes to golf or is an athlete of some kind. But it's also just great advice for healthy and active living. Like I'm a recreational Mm -hmm. athlete. I'm not a high performance athlete. But -hmm. there was so much in this course for me. I mean, they talked about anxiety, dealing with anxiety, um, the importance of self-compassion, burnout, mindfulness. And I was thinking, you know, for us as spiritual people, people who pray, mm-hmm. I just found it enormously complimentary. Um, yeah. And there was really something in this course for everybody. Yeah, there there is. Uh, I grew up as a figure skater and I remember practicing all of my routines in my head, like in my mind when it, before I'd go to sleep. And then um, this was like an extension of my training. And the cool thing about the psychology of performance here with, with uh, Great Courses Plus is just that everything is transferable. You know, what you learn as a young athlete or just on your baseball team or your soccer team or, you know, golf or ice skating or whatever it is. Uh, it actually does influence the way that you perform in so many areas of life. 
Yeah. And it was also very reassuring because as Mm -hmm. you get older, obviously your performance declines, but if you stay on top of, you know, the psychological elements of, of being active, uh, you can actually prolong your performance. Like I learned in this course that golfers between the ages of 35 and 49, which is my age bracket now, uh, they only experience 0.07% decrease in performance. The key they say, if you're, you know, healthy and active and mindful of all these different things that they're talking about, is to just keep golfing. And I can definitely do that. All right. So if you want to stay on top of your game, uh, both on the course and off the course, join Great Courses Plus. It's all about learning with purpose and real life application. When you sign up, you get unlimited streaming access to thousands of video lectures on virtually any topic that interests you, uh, including the psychology of performance, how to be your best in life. They are thoroughly vetted and fact-checked, so you can have confidence that you are learning from the best. We have a special offer for Church Meets World listeners. Just go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash CMW. And when you sign up for The Great Courses Plus, you'll get a full month of unlimited access for free. Again, that's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash CMW. So, should college athletes get paid? That's the question we're exploring in today's episode of Church Meets World. It was written and produced and narrated by Kevin Jackson, an assistant producer here at America who is a huge sports fan. The episode is based on a feature he wrote last year called Should Colleges Pay Their Athletes? What Catholic Social Teaching Has to Say, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Okay, but just a warning, this is going to feel a bit nostalgic because Kevin actually recorded the audio from a college basketball game he attended in November 2019. So way before the pandemic shut everything down, you're going to be placed back into the world of cheering fans and beer and basketball courts and it's it's gonna it's gonna bring up some feelings shortly and after the episode kevin will join us to talk about how the pandemic has changed march madness along with the ethics of paying college athletes and who he's picking in 2021 to win it all It's Friday, November 22nd, 2019. I'm in Madison Square Garden, the storied venue in the heart of Midtown Manhattan, and I'm totally engrossed in a college basketball game. That was a nice shot. The number one ranked Duke Blue Devils are taking on my alma mater, the Georgetown Hoyas. We're probably going to lose, but I'm used to that. I'm a 2019 graduate from Georgetown, which means that I suffered through the worst four-year stretch of basketball in our school's history. Tonight, I'm hoping that the Hoyas could get a signature win against one of the best teams in the country. Midway through the second half, the Hoyas are hanging in there despite some awful calls from the officials. I take a sip of my beer. $15 for a beer. Unbelievable. Where does that money go? The seat is so uncomfortable. I can't believe it was $60. Where does that money go? Actually, there's a lot of money flowing behind the scenes of a college basketball game. Here's what I can see from my narrow metal $60 seat. Trey Jones, the point guard for Duke, is taking the ball up the court. Jones is wearing Nike apparel, head to toe. Last year, Nike brought in $39 billion in revenue. He jogs past the two head coaches, and they're making a combined $13 million a year. 
He steps over a logo at Half Court for 2K. That's a video game company that's sponsoring this game. 2K's parent company generated $2.5 billion in revenue last year. And the game is on ESPN2. Disney, who owns ESPN, generated $69 billion in revenue last year. Fans are spending their money to be entertained. The coaches are getting paid. The arena is packed. The TV ratings are good, so the network is making money. Sponsors are plastered everywhere. And the athletes, the reason everyone is here, the people generating all this cash flow, they get, well, they get to go to school. From America Media, I'm Kevin Jackson. I'm a journalist, a former college athlete, and a big sports fan. And I want to know, why, in a system that generates so much money for so many different people, do college athletes get none of it? Is that really just? And what about Catholic schools like Georgetown? Aren't they concerned about fair wages and questions of justice? But before we get there, we need to understand what college sports really are. And for me, that means putting aside the rosy images I have of watching college football outside on a perfect fall day, or hearing the crowd roar as Georgetown hits a buzzer-beating three-pointer. Let's start by taking a closer look at the experience of college athletes. College athletes, especially those at Division I schools, often spend 20 to 30 hours a week in mandatory practices and athletic-related activities. It's not unlike having a job, even if it's an enjoyable job. We practice four or five days a week, five days a week in season, and games, games on the weekends. That's Jordan Schmid. He's a junior at Marquette University, a midfielder on their lacrosse team. He's a busy guy. In addition to lacrosse practice nearly every day, he's involved with SAC, a liaison group between athletes and administrators. And of course, he's got a full class schedule too. I'm probably busier than a lot of guys just because I'm pretty involved in SACs, you know. And then I also lead FCA, fellowship of Christian athletes mm-hmm. at Marquette, but nice. my days are pretty filled. Athletes like Jordan invest in their university, so it makes sense that the school would provide something in return. This usually takes the form of scholarships, equipment, room and board, or some combination of these. I played golf for Georgetown, and I was really grateful for that scholarship money and equipment that I received. But the golf team, like Jordan's lacrosse team, wasn't generating tens of millions of dollars in revenue for the university, like the football and basketball programs at large state schools around the country. For those players, is a scholarship really enough? I asked this question to Dominique Foxworth, who used to be one of those players. Honestly, I don't view it as all that complex. Players are the labor, and uh, players deserve to be compensated. I contacted Dominique because he knows the sports industry top to bottom. He played football for the University of Maryland, then spent six years as a cornerback in the NFL. He was the president of the NFL Players Association. He's now 36, has his MBA from Harvard, and contributes in a number of roles for ESPN. All of that perspective has led him to believe that there's something fundamentally wrong with the way the college athletic system is structured, at least for the big two revenue-generating sports. At one point, it was a collegiate endeavor, and I guess it still is 
is that way for a lot of other sports, but for the big two specifically, it's, it's not at all collegiate sports. It's professional sports. The big two sports that Dominique refers to are men's football and basketball. Rather than pay the kids with money, they pay them with, with scholarships. And mm-hmm. to me, that seems uh, kind of backwards, backwards way to do this because it's not something that we would allow in any other business we would. I mean, we don't do that for child actors. We don't do that for Starbucks baristas. We don't do that for anybody. If you are providing labor, you aren't compensated with classes. While college athletes are essentially getting paid in classes, the universities are getting paid in actual money. Here's an example. In 2017 to 2018, the football program at the University of Maryland, where Dominique played, generated about $35 million in revenue. After operating expenses, they cleared a profit of about $15 million. But actually, that puts Maryland in the bottom 20% of major football schools in terms of how much revenue they generate. Schools in the upper echelon of revenue production, like Georgia, Alabama, Michigan, and Texas, generate north of $100 million a year. These major football schools belong to what people often call the Power Five conferences, the largest athletic conferences around the country. So why is it okay to compensate college athletes with a scholarship, but not pay them for their labor? While they're focused on success, we're focused on them. Because protecting college athletes doesn't only happen on the field. The National Collegiate Athletic Association, or the NCAA, the governing body of college sports, determines what is and isn't acceptable for schools to give their athletes in terms of benefits. They determine this based on a principle that they call amateurism. Amateurism is the assumption that athletes should be motivated to participate in sports based on a love for the game or a real enjoyment of playing a sport. In theory, this is different from professionalism, where athletes are motivated, at least partially, by money and prestige. According to the NCAA, college sports should be an environment free from these external influences. So the NCAA says it can't pay athletes because that would defy the definition of amateurism. But it's the NCAA who actually holds the power to define amateurism. You can make the case that that's a circular argument. There seems to be a real effort to preserve this amateur model of college sports. I asked Dominique why that's the case. I think it's because the people, in this case, who are being wronged are people without any power. And it's the, the players. And I think the existing model benefits all the people in power. So I think it's true throughout history, American and otherwise. And inside and out of sports, like the group without the power is going to be the group that's taken advantage of. The NCAA is making some adjustments, though. Soon, college athletes will have the ability to make money off the use of their name, image, and likeness. In 2019, California passed a law allowing this. And the NCAA, to the surprise of many, has committed to making this law compatible with their regulations within the next few years. But Dominique isn't encouraged by these upcoming changes. He just sees more barriers to athletes actually being compensated. If the, if the California legislation allows them to, to profit from their own likeness and image, like... You're not allowed to have agents, so you got to go around and like shop for places who want to who wanna, um, use your likeness. And, like, Dominique thinks that this just creates more work for the athlete. 
Instead of paying them for their labor, it's giving them a job of marketing their own name and likeness. That doesn't give me much hope. As Dominique sees it, the NCAA is just making superficial changes in a flawed system. The NCAA is tweaking what's acceptable to maintain a kind of status quo. In other words, the collegiate amateur model is not a fixed absolute thing. It's a fluid concept to be defined at the NCAA's discretion, and not necessarily for the benefit of athletes. We'll be right back. My friend Henry is starting to lose his voice. He and I have been through a lot of these games together, and we pretty much always lose. You would think a good Catholic school like Georgetown would get some help from above on occasion. That got me thinking. Catholic institutions stand up for labor rights and social justice issues. Do Catholic universities have a particular responsibility to tackle this issue of paying college athletes? Do they have an obligation to lead the way somehow? I thought I'd ask around Catholic school athletic administrations with exactly that question in mind, but no one wanted to talk to me. Nearly everyone didn't respond or declined my request to interview them. I asked players, too, with mostly the same response. To some extent, that's understandable. There is a lot up in the air right now regarding the name, image, and likeness regulations and what those will look like in practice. No one wants to say anything that might contradict the NCAA's eventual policy. The situation is developing fairly quickly. But while schools wait for a clear direction, there are Catholic social teaching principles that can be applied to this situation. If we want to develop a Catholic view on this issue, there's a distinction we need to understand. It's the distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic parts of playing sports. It may sound a bit technical, but stick with me for a minute and I'll explain. The intrinsic elements of sports are those things inherent to playing a game. Things like physical exertion, mental sharpness, strategizing, along with qualities like sportsmanship and team building. Let's go back to Jordan Schmid because he's someone who understands this intrinsic value of sports. Here's how he ended up playing lacrosse at Marquette. I was actually committed to Division II school, uh, Colorado Mesa, out in the west side of Colorado. And I, it, was, it was my only offer through high school. I, being, being from Wisconsin, lacrosse is very big. So my coaches are like, you should just take it. Like, you're probably not going to get any other offers. So I took he it. He just wanted to continue his career. Ultimately, an opportunity came up for him to go to Marquette, and he didn't hesitate. After I graduated, that summer after my senior year, like a roster spot opened up, and Coach Ampler reached out to me. And I was like, hey, like we have an open roster spot. Like, I can't give you a scholarship, but you got a spot on the team if you want to come try to make a name for yourself. And I dropped everything. You can tell that Jordan loves playing lacrosse and loves that he got to play at a university in his home state. That's the intrinsic value of sports, getting caught up in a love of the game. And you don't need to be a college athlete to experience this intrinsic value. For those of you who have ever played a sport, have you ever found yourself totally caught up in the heat of competition, 
even if it's two-on-two pickup basketball with your friends, or not notice the hours go by as you practice tirelessly by yourself. These kinds of moments are ecstatic. They're joyful, like a creative peak of human experience. From a Catholic perspective, the pursuit of these things in sports should be encouraged because it contributes to human development. There's a simple goodness in the act of playing sports. So that's the intrinsic, a sense of joy, a sense of play, sports as an end in themselves. But then there's this other half of the equation. When you get to the level of collegiate sports or professional sports, extrinsic things come in. That's Father Tom Massaro, a Jesuit who teaches at Fordham University and an expert on Catholic social teaching. He's the one who laid out this intrinsic-extrinsic distinction for me in the first place. Extrinsic is, forget about you and your enjoyable experience. What are the outside things that um, are related to your sports activity? For example, money. Mm-hmm. Somebody's making money mm-hmm. on your playing. Uh, that's extrinsic. It, you know, it affects it, but it's not the core of it. What kinds of things are extrinsic? Money, as Father Massaro said, is an obvious example. Prestige is another one. Two influences the NCAA has kept out of its definition of amateurism. Remember the many commercial things at Madison Square Garden surrounding that Duke point guard as he took the ball up the floor? All of those things, from the logo on his jersey, to the paycheck in his coach's bank account, to the ticket I bought for the game, those are all extrinsic factors. They don't directly affect his experience as an athlete, but they're still related. So what's the Catholic perspective on these extrinsic factors? I think of the justice dimensions, and I suspect these are really obvious to you. Let's take a public school. Uh, What state are you from originally? Georgia. Okay, let's pick on UGA. All right. If UGA is in a relationship with the scholar-athletes, obviously the person is going to school and playing a sport— and it redounds to the credit, it benefits financially and public relations-wise, the reputation of, of the Bulldogs, Go Dogs. Any ethicist would ask the question, why is the labor of that person benefiting a third party, such as the school or the state or even advertisers? So the Catholic social teaching tradition, and that's what I've taught and I've written on, has a very strong concern about labor justice and that the rewards of your effort, you deserve uh, at least a share. From the Catholic perspective, that's the question we have to ask. Are athletes receiving a fair share? Compensation for athletes is a question of justice, making sure that they receive what they're owed by the school. But... And here's the key. This is an extrinsic concern. It does not affect in any way that simple goodness of playing sports or the intrinsic value. The Catholic ethical framework demands both the intrinsic and extrinsic work for the good of the human person. Let's go back to the NCAA. How does amateurism fit into this whole intrinsic-extrinsic formulation? Here's how the NCAA's Division I manual describes amateurism. Student-athletes shall be amateurs in an intercollegiate sport, and their participation should be motivated primarily by education and by the physical, mental, and social benefits to be derived. 
For the most part, the NCAA sees the same type of value in sports that we would understand from a Catholic perspective. Physical, mental, emotional benefits. All great. But then the definition goes on. Student participation in intercollegiate athletics is an avocation, and student-athletes shall be protected from exploitation by professional and commercial enterprises. This is where the language of intrinsic and extrinsic becomes very useful. The NCAA views the intrinsic as good, as something to be pursued and encouraged. But it views the extrinsic with suspicion. Why? Intrinsic and extrinsic don't equate to good and bad from a Catholic perspective. They're just different. But they're both important. This distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic allows us to separate the actual experience of playing a sport from the factors that surround it. We can ask a question like, should college athletes be paid? And also recognize that playing college sports, payment or not, is a really valuable thing for a young person to do. So with that freedom, let's ask the question, could college athletes be paid? I mean, would it be financially feasible? Well, let's consider a hypothetical case where football players at Power 5 schools get paid. Suppose the schools pay the 40 players on each of their teams who make the biggest contributions. And 40 is just an arbitrary number. Could schools afford to pay them, say, $25,000 a year in addition to their scholarships? That adds up to a million dollars a year in expenses per school. The short answer is yes. Power 5 schools could absolutely afford to do this. 60 out of 65 Power 5 football programs made a profit of over a million dollars in 2017 to 2018. Now, many of these profits from football programs go to fund other sports at a university. And granted, there are definitely other complicating financial factors at play here. But 52 Power 5 schools make so much profit off their football programs that paying a million dollars to players would be less than 10% of their football profits. It's hard to imagine that crippling a school's other sports programs. By the way, we could run the same thought experiment with similar results if we wanted to pay basketball players. Basketball programs don't typically make as much money as football, but the teams are way smaller. A salary would definitely be feasible for highly skilled basketball players, like Trey Jones, who just annihilated my beloved Hoyas. The Hoyas lost, only by eight though, so I'm not too upset. It was a pretty good effort against a great team. The bigger losers, it seems, are the kids who put their bodies on the line for their schools and don't get a fair share of the money that they help generate. Catholic schools, like Georgetown, could get involved. They can keep promoting the importance of playing sports purely for the enjoyment of it and also ask tough questions about compensation. It's a both-and approach to the issue. Catholics could also get involved. Justice may demand a rethinking of the financial model for collegiate sports, and that would have consequences for fans. After all, this whole system is driven by the fans and the money they're willing to spend, including me. <sighs> I'll take another one.
That was Kevin Jackson, our assistant audio producer here at America. And Kevin is with us now to discuss his audio piece with us. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us on Church Meets World. Of course. Good to be with you guys. Okay. So I have to admit, I am not a huge sports fan. Um, so most of this is a foreign tongue to me. Well, you would um, be on par with most people on America's staff in that case. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair. Most, not, not all. all. Not all. <laughs> um, but this this is a fascinating episode. I'm so glad that we got to feature it. And it raises this great question about whether we should pay college athletes or how we should compensate them uh, for their labor. And I have to say that, you know, it struck me initially as an odd question because when I was in college, there was a different set of questions, which was, you know, these college athletes were getting a full ride often to our university and not always involved in the academic life uh, of the school. And, you know, the rest of us who might not have had a uh, athletic talent were paying, you know, and, and actually still are paying for our college education. Um, and so, I mean, I guess the, the simplest way to ask this question is like, you know, isn't a scholarship enough? Well, Maggie, you put it very politely there. I I endured, as a college athlete myself, I endured four years of people making jokes <laughs> that I shouldn't have gotten into the school. So um, I-, I where, did, where did you go to school again? Kevin? And I went to Georgetown University. So I was on the men's golf team there. And uh, mm. I, I do understand the question, though, and, and it seems um, definitely like a scholarship tuition classes. I mean, a, the value of a great education, you almost can't even measure it. So definitely there is a, a real value there. Absolutely. And I would also say that for players who are not on revenue generating or profit generating teams, which is almost everyone except football and men's basketball players, that a scholarship is enough. And yeah. in, in some cases, it's more than what their team is actually generating in terms of in terms of cash flow. So in my case, um, my men's golf team did not produce hardly any. It, in fact, we lost money for the athletic department. So the partial scholarship that I got was seemed like more than enough to me, seemed more than fair. And, sure. and so I, I think that for the vast majority of college athletes, a scholarship is enough. The question becomes when you're on a team that is generating tens of millions of dollars, hmm. then is a scholarship enough? And then is the value of, of an education, the value of classes, is it enough at that point? I do think that it's a really interesting question because it, it gets at this, this idea that the NCAA really wants to tie in the academic endeavor and the athletic endeavor going on in college sports really wants to tie those together. And mm -hmm. in a lot of cases with these kind of bigger football and basketball programs, that's not necessarily the case. These athletes happen to be going to school while they're pursuing their athletic career, hoping to go professional. So I think it's, it is a really interesting question because it gets at that, that link that is not necessarily there, but the NCAA insists is there between the academic and the athletic. Mm -hmm. You did a great job, Kevin, of, of bringing out this fact that there is a ton of money at work here and a ton of money to be made behind the scenes. Yes. Um, and then you also point out um, this really interesting thing about the NCAA, uh, about how it understands amateurism and how, you know, it says we can't pay college athletes because we want to hold on to this 
this definition of am- amateurism in college sports. Uh, but at the same time, it's the NCAA who actually defines amateurism. So, sure. in light of the, the you know the, the the broadening pressure from outside, uh, from athletes, former athletes, professional athletes, uh, sports fans in general, people are now seeing this huge amount of money go to the hands of some people. The athletes get nothing. Is there enough pressure yet on the NCAA for them to actually consider changing that definition of amateurism, or are they even considering it? Well, I think yes and no. I would say no first to the question of whether they are actually going to change their idea of amateurism. I think their priority is keeping a clear distinction between college and professional sports. And so for that, for them, that means not actually paying uh, any kind of salary or paycheck to athletes for their performance. Um, Then after that, we get into a bit of gray area as far as what might be acceptable to give college athletes while preserving that definition of amateurism. And I talk about this in the uh, the piece, how this has kind of changed over time and how there is a lot of gray area there. So for example, we have this issue of name, image, and likeness. College athletes shortly, we think, will be able to make money off of the use of their name, image, and likeness by a third party. So I could go to, I as a college athlete, could go down the street to uh, a local shop who wants to put my picture on the front of their store and say, you know, X and so-and-so athlete buys our products. So that would be acceptable as long as I'm not endorsing a brand that is a competitor of my school's athletic department. So that seems like it will happen. And uh, it was actually expected to happen in January of this year. Uh, It's been pushed back temporarily by the NCAA. There there are several ongoing court cases um, and and issues of legislation that the NCAA is kind of waiting for to see how they'll work out. But I don't see a radical change in the definition of amateurism coming anytime soon. I think the NCAA is content to kind of plot along and make changes as needed within this current system, rather than just say, you know, we need to totally upend the system and start from the beginning. So, Kevin, the NCAA might not budge on the definition of amateurism, but do Catholic universities have a greater responsibility for their own student athletes, especially if we are trying to practice good Catholic social thought, which involves uh, you know, fair wages and, and compensation for one's labor? I mean, you went to Georgetown, so it was your Jesuit education that like tuned you in to even thinking about these types of questions, sure. right? I mean, you're a big, you're a big sports fan, but... That's a great question. Do they have a bigger responsibility? I think so. I think it's tough to know exactly how much of a responsibility. Um, I do. Th- I, I know that uh, President DeJoya, the president of Georgetown, has been very involved in this name, image, and likeness issue at the NCAA. I believe he was the head of the commission looking into uh, this issue, and he now has taken a major leadership role with the NCAA. So, I think he is a good representative for Jesuit schools in particular getting more involved. I will say that when I reached out to athletic departments during uh, the research for this piece, that I really didn't sense any difference between Catholic schools and uh, public schools or non-religious schools. It was, it was kind of just like, you know, maybe they leave their, their Jesuit identity behind a little bit in the athletic department. <laughs> not, not, not saying that about individuals. I just mean that it is, it is definitely a, a, a sensitive topic. And I think one that 
that no one really wanted to dive into. So I would, I would really love to see. There's a lot of money. I mean, there's a lot, a lot of, of money. money. There's a lot Absolutely. of yeah, behind Absolutely. it. And that's always going to, I mean, these institutions are businesses, I was going to say, this right? is a business totally. too at the end of the day. And of course we want that to be ethical, but um, it's, it's complicated and it probably has a long history to disentangle. Absolutely. Absolutely. But isn't that an interesting question? Like, shouldn't it be then a Catholic institution that is willing to break that cycle of like, you know, just to stand up and to say, there's something not quite right here. We're going to sacrifice in the short term, mm -hmm. maybe, you know, the equivalent of our uh, shareholders won't be happy. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, we have to do something here just to just to help the people who are you know, who are in a sense being exploited mm -hmm. for labor that they're not being properly compensated for. And I think it is one of many questions that Catholic institutions are asking about really practicing Catholic social thought and economic justice, um, even considering the cost of tuition for students these days, you know, and, and whether a, let's say a, a Jesuit Catholic college could be tuition free. This is part of a larger conversation. Definitely. And Sebastian, I think you're really right that there are a lot of moving parts in this and a lot of things that come into this and, and competing interests in a lot of ways. And for example, if you start talking about you know paying college athletes or reallocating money from one team to another, that creates a lot of questions about, okay, well, what teams can we keep? What teams can we fund at a university that aren't making money? And then you bring in all the donors and people who are you know up in arms about these kind of questions. So it is really complex. It is a business, I think. Uh, there are a lot of elements of, of a business at play here. And I, I think Jesuit schools, Catholic schools could take a lead here. I'm not sure exactly what the first step should be, but I think just asking the question, what is fair to pay college athletes? What is, what is fair beyond a scholarship? Is there something beyond a scholarship that we should be uh, that we should be paying people. So I, I would look to them to just ask that initial question. Well, thank you for raising the question for us here. Um, let's turn to this year and and March Madness. Uh, how how is it going to look different than last year? And you know, or how has it been listening to this episode a year after you originally produced it? Well, the main difference between this year's March Madness and previous ones is that Georgetown will be returning to the tournament for the first time <laughs> since 2015. So I am very excited to watch my Hoyas play. And Duke and Duke won't and Duke won't be there to kick and you that's out. That's right. Yes. So that is <laughs> that is just two pieces of great news uh, that that I'm excited about going into this tournament. Uh, I think it'll have a great feel to it. There won't be any fans there and um and it'll be in a bubble, but I think it'll still be really exciting. I mean the the feeling when the tournament first begins and your bracket picks are locked in and you're just like, all right, well, here we go. And you just, it's just absolute mayhem for the first couple of days. So I'm looking forward to that. And uh, hopefully will be um, an uplifting experience for sports fans who, who missed this last year. All right. So one final question for you. I know your heart is with the Georgetown Hoyas, uh, but who is at the end of your bracket? Who is going to win it all? Who's your prediction? Well, I'm telling you this before the tournament starts, so you can't copy my pick in our office bracket pool. <laughs> but I have Michigan winning. I've already yeah. set mine too. I've got I've got Michigan, Michigan winning. Great team this year. Yeah, they've had a really good year. Um I, I I think they're really strong. They had kind of a fluke loss to Ohio State in the Big Ten championship, but um yeah, I, I like them. I like them. I'm I'm you know, at least twelve percent confident in that pick. <laughs> <laughs> Which makes it a very solid pick. 
for March Madness Bracketology. Yes. Kevin Jackson, thanks very much for joining us and thanks for your work on this episode. Thank you, guys. All right. To read Kevin's feature, Should Colleges Pay Their Athletes? What Catholic Social Teaching Has to Say? Visit americamagazine.org and we will link to that in our show notes. Church Meets World is a production of America Media. This episode was written, produced, and narrated by Kevin Jackson and produced by us, Maggie Van Dorn and Sebastian Gomes. Sound design by Ashley Spillane. Production assistance from Kevin Christopher Robles. Please subscribe at americamagazine.org slash subscribe. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next time.